Good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be taking a pause from the Minor Prophet series, and we're actually going to be in Psalm 103. It should be up on the screen. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Good morning. There's always a lot of things to do get up here. Get the stand, get the mic. I think we're good to go. <laughs> so like Erica read for us, we are uh, reading through Psalm 103 this morning. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I don't really have a particular reason why I chose this psalm. Um, I don't have um, any emotional connection to it. I don't have any, sort of, I mean, aside from being an amazing piece of God's word, um, I don't have any sort of gripping backstory to lure you in and say, like, this is why I picked this psalm. Um, I just read it, and it seems like one of those powerhouse psalms. It's like, wow, there's a lot here, uh, and I want to go through it. Um, I also picked it because it really challenges me as a psalm. Uh, and I say that because it's a psalm of praise, uh, where, where David here is praising God and giving praise and worship to God and blessing God. And that's not something I'm really very good at. Uh, I like a good sermon or a good passage of scripture that has a, a very easy, like, an application. Like, learn this and then do that. And, and this psalm doesn't really have that. It, it, there's things in there that we can apply and lessons that we can take away from this, but this isn't really a passage of Scripture where we're learning things so much as we are resting in the richness of who God is and his character. Um, and that's, that's tough for me. Uh, it's not something I'm very good at, but I want to be. And, and so as, as I'm talking today, I'm doing it as much for myself as I am for all of you. Uh, anytime we open the Scriptures, we probably want to ask ourselves a couple of questions just to guide us and, and, and get a, a good frame of reference here. So I've got three that I think are useful. Um, the first is, why was this passage of scripture written? So what was its purpose? And we already said it's a psalm of praise. What was its original context? So why would its author have written it? Sort of what was going on around that time? And then finally, how does this speak to the believer today? How does it speak to us? Um, and we're going to take some time by going through those uh, three questions, mostly the third one. 
So David, we already said, wrote this psalm to praise God. Um, so we'll focus on that. Uh, David, I see it in this way. He's offering praise to God in sort of two different directions. One thing he's praising God for is God's identity. Uh, he's praising God because God is really great. He is strong, and he is good, and he is faithful. So he's praising all the greatness of God. Um, but he's also praising God from his own identity, which is that of, of, of weakness and frailty and humanity. Right? So in short, he's praising God because God is great and because he's not, because David isn't. And it's a combination of those two things that's going to result in an attitude or a perspective of praise. Uh, in his commentary on this psalm, Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to use him a lot this morning. It's a really good commentary if you ever want to read through it. Uh, he says this. He says, we should attribute Psalm 103 to David's later years when he had a higher sense of the preciousness of pardon because of a keener sense of sin than in his younger days. So I'm 26, and I am much more aware right now of my sinfulness than 10 years ago when I was 16. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, you get older and you get more mature and you get wiser and you get closer to God and sin reveals itself more. But also the other reason for that is you just have more time to sin which is unfortunate, but true, right? We don't stop sinning. We don't have a cure that says, I'm just going to learn this one thing. I'm going to hear this one sermon. And uh, all of a sudden, I've, I've got this sin thing figured out. We don't have that, right? We don't have a way to escape from sin. We don't have a way to escape from the consequences of sin. Um, and, and that's why we need a savior. In another 10 years, when I'm 36, or another 10 when I'm 46, I'm going to understand my sinfulness a lot more which isn't good. <laughs> well, it is good, but um, it's not good that we have more sin, right? So David is writing this here at the end of his life. He's sinned a lot. We can read through his life, and we know a lot of those sins that he committed, and it's a pretty messy life, right? But we all have messy lives, and we all need a Savior. As for how we should apply this psalm as, as modern believers, there's an instinct here that maybe we should try to just extract as much knowledge and, and stuff from this piece of Scripture as we should, as we can, and there's sort of a wisdom there. You know, we should try to always look for um, the, the wisdom in God's writing and what can we take away from this. And this is the word of God. It's really important, right? Um, but like I said, instead of looking for the application and looking for the knowledge, there's a richness in that knowledge, but I think there's so much more sweetness just in resting in that knowledge and that experience of who God is in resting in the feeling of his character and knowing him and praising him. So that's where we're probably going to focus more today. I'm probably not going to say anything that you don't know. I'm probably not going to teach you anything new here. Um, but I do hope that um, in the absence of mind-blowing revelations or really cool insights into this text, um, that we can just remember this morning to praise God, because God is pretty great. Uh, and, and we should praise him a lot more than we do. So with that said, um, let's pray really quick and then get into the, the psalm itself. God, thank you for our time here together. Thank you for the ability to go through your word and learn new things about you, but also to know you, to know who you are. God, we do not praise you as we should. We do not remember you as we should. We ought to give you more than we do, and we don't, because we are broken people. God, help us to remember you. Help us to see you and to love you well and to give you the praise that you deserve. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So the bulk of this psalm, of Psalm 103, is just devoted to praising God. And we may want to ask, well, how do we praise God? And we may ask, well, how does David praise God? And use that sort of as a blueprint to go forward. Well, David pretty much praises God just by describing him, describing who he is and what he does, so his character and his actions here. Now, if you were to describe me, probably there would be some nice things in there. I hope there would be some nice things in there that you have to say, but it wouldn't result in praise. And that's because even though you'd have nice things to say about me, if you were being honest and truthful, not, you know, shielding your words out of friendship or kindness, um, there would also be some negative things in there as well. There would be some criticisms because I have shortcomings. There's also just neutral things you could say about me. If you say Daniel is a skinny guy with brown hair, that's not praise. It's not either a compliment or uh, a criticism. It's just a very neutral statement. But when we describe God, there is nothing that we can say about him that is neutral or critical. When we describe God, the only things that we can say are praiseworthy things, no matter what it is, if we understand him rightly and are speaking about him truthfully. And that's what David does here. Um, to give you an example, if you describe ice cream, kind of a silly example, but if you describe ice cream, it's pretty tough to find bad things to say about it, right? No matter how you describe it, it's, it's sweet, it's creamy, it's rich, it's refreshing, right? All of those are descriptive statements, but all of them have a positive connotation with them. It's tough to find a bad thing to say about ice cream. And God's the same way. When we describe him, there's really nothing bad to say. And so that's what David does here. As our descriptive vocabulary for God expands, we're going to find more ways to praise him as well. To go back to Spurgeon for a minute, he says this, a many-sided is the character of our heavenly father. For having forgiven as a judge, he then cures as a physician. He is all things to us as our need calls for him, and our infirmities do but reveal in him new characters. So again, as we learn more about who God is, we're just going to find more ways to praise him, and we should. We shouldn't just take that knowledge and keep it for ourselves, but we should do what David does here and share it in praise. So who is God? Well, let's read what David says here in those first five verses. He's sort of speaking to himself in the second person through most of that. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So to David, God is someone who knows him intimately and personally. Right? God is doing those things for him. He's not just saying, well, these are the things I'm going to do for Israel, or these are the things I'm going to do for people in general. These are things that he's doing for David specifically, in particular. And look at those verbs there. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, he renews. Those aren't little things. Any one of those things is, is pretty amazing and spectacular to do for someone. Right? But God does them, and he does them all for David. He doesn't withhold his heart when he gives his good gifts to his people. He goes all in. Similarly, God wouldn't be doing those things for David if they didn't need doing. He wouldn't be forgiving David if he didn't have a need for forgiveness. He wouldn't be healing David if he didn't have a need for healing. Right? These aren't just nice things that God is doing for David, like, oh, you know, here's a quarter. Go buy yourself a soda. Right? He's doing these things because David is in desperate need of them. These are things that are necessary for life. It's like food or water or air. He's giving him the things that he needs to live. I want us to consider for a second what we as, as mortal people do for other people. Right? It's tough for us to do something that goes against our convenience or our happiness or our ease, Right? Most of the things that we do are out of our own self-interest in one way or another. 
Right? When we do something for someone else, we feel pretty good about ourselves because it is asking a lot sometimes. You know, when those meal trains come up in church and, and we see people sign up for those meal trains, that's awesome, right? But that's for people we like. What about the people we don't like? What are we going to do for them? It's really unlikely that we're going to act against our own comfort for people either we like or especially that we dislike when we have something better to do. And I say all that because I want to ask if you think God maybe has better things to do with his time than talk to us all the time. Do you think God maybe would be more comfortable if he didn't have to constantly redirect and guide and remind and discipline us every hour of every day? I'm sure anyone in here could come up with a very comprehensive theology of, of God's omnipotence and his power that says, well, none of those things are really an inconvenience to an almighty God. And that's true, but you're kind of missing the point here. Because what I want us to think about is that, wow, God does all those things for me. And it's pretty amazing because even if I could do those things for other people, I probably wouldn't. I teach, uh, I teach sixth grade. And earlier in the year, um, I gave my students a writing prompt, which um, was basically just, uh, if you have superpowers for a week, what would they be and what would you do with them? And there were some good eggs in there. But most of them, the majority of them, you, they, they chose to write about things that would enrich them or benefit them, either use their power to get good things for themselves or use their power to get payback on bad things that were going on in their lives. Right? The most unrealistic thing about those superhero stories that we love reading or, or watching is that people, when they get power, they do good for other people with it. Well, God has all the power, all of it. And what does he do with it? He does bless himself. He does glorify himself. But he uses it to enrich us, to serve us and love us. And that's pretty amazing because we wouldn't do that for other people if we had that power. So thank God that he's not like us that his ways are higher and better and different than ours, because if God was like us, we wouldn't be reading David say what he's saying here. I've got one more thing from Spurgeon to round out these first five verses. He says this, Our good Lord bestows really good things, not vain toys and idle pleasures. If we never cease to bless him until he ceases to bless us, our employment will be eternal. His point here is that God's blessings are abundant and life-giving and good. And if we're going to keep blessing him as long as he keeps blessing us, we should be doing that the rest of our lives. And we know, because of the promises in Scripture, that God is going to keep blessing us as long as we live. So we should be blessing him and praising him as well. Now, as we read these next couple verses, 6 through 10, I want to take maybe an unusual approach, because this is just where my mind went. It's crazy in there sometimes. When I read those next six verses, and we'll read them in just a second, I hear all of the good things, but I also, my mind goes a different direction a little bit. So verse six here says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And we'll pause right there, even though that's kind of a weird spot. So I hear all the good things, right? God's mercy, his graciousness, his patience, his restraint. Those are all wonderful. But I'm a broken person, and I hear another side to that as well. When I hear that God is slow to anger or that he won't always chide, I really just hear that God is angry and scolding. He may not keep his anger forever, but that still leaves a lot of room to be angry, right? There's not forever, and then there's everything else. 
right? That could still be a thousand years. That could still be a million years, right? And, and so why does David include this in his praise of God? It's kind of a stumbling point for me. I don't know if it is for you, but um, it's a little bit confusing sometimes, especially as uh, we've been reading through the Minor Prophets. It's easy to kind of take that picture away. So I think first we need to understand our relationship with sin. All right, so after reading through the Minor Prophets, even with every care taken to the contrary, it can be easy to come away with that picture of God as this this scolding, petty, tyrant person. And that's wrong. I mean, it's very much wrong, and we all know that it's wrong, but it's still the image that we get in our heads, and we've got to get it out somehow. Two weeks ago, I was really struck by what Dan said at the end of Zephaniah 1. And I don't have the exact quote, um, but let me read you the end of Zephaniah 1, just those two verses, and, and then just remind you what he said there. So Zephaniah 1, verses 17 and 18 says this. It says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Very cheery, right? Very uplifting. And we just want to bless God and praise God after reading that, right? Well, we should. And what Dan said at the end of that, at the end of chapter 1 of Zephaniah, he said, don't know if this is an exact quote, that if the Bible were to end right there, God would still be just. And that's true. But to understand why, we need to understand our relationship with sin. Uh, in a very famous sermon, not Spurgeon, but Jonathan Edwards had this to say. He said, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. They have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. We deserve God's anger. And if you don't think so, try going through a day and just keep tally of all the things that you do wrong. Have a little self-awareness and, and fought, uh, tally up all of the rage, the lust, the selfishness, the arrogance, the self-pity. Count every stone you cast in judgment. Cast every word that you throw carelessly in gossip. Count every secret that you indulge shamefully uh, in private. And at the end of that day, remember that you're still going way too easy on yourself when you judge yourself because you are not an impartial judge. And you can't be. No matter how badly you feel about yourself, no matter how badly you feel about your sin, and if we're honest, we don't always feel badly about our sin. But no matter how badly you do feel about it, you don't feel bad enough because you're not going hard enough on yourself. A good friend of mine, a counselor, once said to me that there are no special sins. And he's right, there are no special sins. But there's just sin. And on its own, it's enough to just do a sin. You don't deserve God's goodness. And I don't deserve God's goodness. We deserve his wrath and the judgment that we can't give ourselves, but that he says he's going to give in Zephaniah. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't pour his wrath out on us. He doesn't pour out that vengeance on us. And that's why David praises him. Because David didn't know it, but there was a savior coming. He didn't know who it was going to be or that it was going to come from his line. Well, maybe he did. Um, but there's a savior coming to save us from that that we rightfully deserve. I think we also need to understand God's relationship with sin. 
So we, we may still be asking ourselves, what's the big deal with sin? Especially, like, we, we know the big stuff and we know why that's wrong. But some of the littler stuff, like the, the gossiping or the fibbing or things like that, a little bit of arrogance at the end of the day, that doesn't seem like it deserves, um, you know, our blood being poured out like dust and our flesh like dung, right? That doesn't seem to match up in our minds still. But we don't see the big picture. And God does. There's parents in the room. I'm not a parent, but to the parents, uh, when you ask your kid to clean their room and they don't do it, they've done something wrong, right? They don't have the big picture of, of that you're asking them to keep the house clean, but also to train them into responsible young people. That you're doing it for not only their good, but for the good of, and glory of your household. Does that make you a vengeful, petty, dictatorial parent because you expect them to do the things that you ask them to do. The same way, we can't put that on God. You know, sin is a poison that eats us alive, it destroys our joy, and it sabotages our ability to live the way that we should as humans. God is so good for hating sin the way that he does. He's so good for hating sin with the wrath and the vengeance that he does. Right? That's, there's nothing petty about that. There's nothing wrong with that. Sin is poison, and God hates to see his children drink it. I think this is the last thing we get from Spurgeon this morning, but, but he says this that, uh, in, in this verse, that God will sometimes chide, for he cannot endure that his people should harbor sin in their hearts. But not forever will he chasten them. As soon as they turn to him and forsake their evil ways, he will end the quarrel. When his children turn from their sins, he soon turns from his chidings. God isn't out to pick a fight with us any more than you're out to pick a fight with your kids. Right? God acts in love, only ever in love. He's not capable of anything else even when he's disciplining us, even when he's disciplining us harshly. His heart towards us is not primarily that of a justiciar or a magistrate or a king, because if it was, we would get justice. We don't get justice. We get God's love. Because God's foremost heart towards us is that of a father. Verses 11 and 13, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's this benevolent injustice that we don't get what we deserve, and instead we get God's goodness. That shows us the true heart of God, which is a heart of tenderness and love and fatherly affection. And how couldn't we praise him? after knowing how bad we are and how broken we are, how incapable we are, and yet the goodness that God gives to us anyways. How could we not praise him? I want to pause here a moment and just add that I can, I can talk a big game about sin and God's love, but this is something I struggle with so much. Um, I'm not up here this morning talking to someone who's sinless or has it figured out. I really don't. I'm here as someone who really desperately needs a God who will forgive me anyways, even when I don't deserve it. I'm someone who desperately needs a God who loves me, even though most days I really feel like I couldn't care less about him. Right? The indifference that we show towards God and the relentlessness with which he pursues us is not something that we deserve, but we get it. It's weird and it's tough to talk about sin because we don't have it figured out. And if you're sitting out there feeling like I struggle with this, um, not having the answers, not knowing what to do, not knowing what the takeaway is or the fix or the solution, I'm not going to tell you that there is one because I don't have one. But God does. That's why David praises him. 
Because even though he doesn't have the answers to fixing sin, even though he doesn't have a way to enrich himself or to remove himself out of this pit that he's in, God does. He has the sin problem figured out. And he gives it to us, offers it to us free of charge. So praise God, because you're a sinner who deserves nothing, but you've been treated as a child who gets everything. The last couple of verses here talk less about the bad things that God keeps from us and more about the good things that he does give to us. Um, I want to take a little detour again just for a second and, and say that um, as Christians, especially those of us raised in the church, we often take too low a view of sin. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that um, we have been raised here in our whole lives that our sins are paid for, it's free, and it's done away with, and, and we're good to go if we just believe in God. And that's true, um, but I think you could maybe hear some of the flippancy in that. Right? And that's not an attitude that we want to take towards our free gift of salvation. So it's not exactly wrong, but it can leave a wrong picture in our minds, even though we're saying all true words. And, you know, valuable things don't tend to be free, right? If you get something free, it's usually a little penny gift or a white elephant gift or something like that. Uh, there's a reason white elephant gifts, they say, you know, not above $15 or something like that. Because if these are free gifts that we're giving to each other, eh, we're not probably going to give a new TV or a new car or something like that. It's going to be something small that within a month is probably going to end up in a landfill or a storage bin somewhere, totally forgotten. So what makes God's free gift so good and so different? Well, I want us to think like little kids for a second. You're a little eight-year-old kid or whatever, and you're going with your parents, and they buy you a Happy Meal, right? You're getting a free burger, and that's great. You love it. You're excited. Um, it's free to the kid, but it's not free to you, right? You paid a cost for it. So if you hand that kid a burger, and they hand you a dollar, I'm not a parent, but that seems to me like pretty wretched parenting, right? That that kid has an expectation to pay or contribute towards that gift. Right, if you hand your kid a burger and they reach for their piggy bank to hand you a dollar back, that's probably not the attitude you want to raise them with. Right, by all means, our grace is free. And we should know that it's free, and we should love that it's free, because every gift given in love is free. It's not a transaction. But I think that parent would also be missing the mark if, as that kid grew older, they didn't teach them that gifts have value to them. Right, that if they give them a happy meal, that there should be some gratitude because that's just the right posture that you should take towards that. And that not all gifts are the same, that our gratitude should increase as the cost of that gift goes up and the value of that gift goes up. So yeah, if you get a happy meal, that gets some gratitude right there, but what about a new trampoline? What about a Nintendo Switch? Probably the trampoline's more expensive, actually, I don't know. Um, but a happy meal is a nice gift, but it doesn't merit the same thankfulness as those larger gifts. What happens if that family buys a new house? And they buy that new house, and they move into that new house, and again, that kid reaches for his piggy bank and pulls out a dollar. It's a little bit ridiculous, right? That kid is not going to pay for the down payment on that house. That kid is not going to be able to buy even a room in that house with their little piggy bank. And that's how ridiculous it is when we try to pay towards God's gift, when we try to contribute towards our own salvation. We don't have anything of value that we can offer that's going to match up to the value of what God has given us. Verse 14 says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. 
The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. We should be thankful to God for these good things that he gives to us. Because we're small. We are nothing. We're not even the eight-year-old kid with the parents. We're more like the ants or the squirrels outside while this person's in their house. Right? Do you think about those ants as you step over their little anthills? Do you think about the squirrels on a cold winter night and, and wonder if they're warm? Dion might. We don't think about that stuff, and we are that small to God. We're even smaller than that in God's eyes. But he loves us. He treats us like children, every single one of us. He thinks enough of us to give us those gifts, to promise everlasting love to a people who are going to forget him in seconds. Faithfulness to people who have never once been faithful to him. He promises to crown and redeem and renew and restore people who are as small as those ants. And if we can understand that, which we can't, by the way, not the way that we should, then we're going to praise God. Because it's a little bit ridiculous that someone would do those things. Again, we would not do those nice things for someone that we even like, especially not someone that we dislike. God does those things for us. We should praise him for that. I want to end by reading these last uh, four verses, and I don't really, or three verses, and I don't have anything to add to what David wrote there. Um, but I do want to remind us just of what I've been saying this whole time, that we should praise God more than we know. Remember what David knew, that God's great and we're not. We have a great father in heaven who loves us, and his heart for us is love. And David didn't keep his praise to himself. When he had something good to say about God, he shared it with the people. He wrote it in a book so that we could read it. And he probably, I don't know this for sure, but he probably set this to music and sang it in front of his courts, which seems a little bit ridiculous to us, but that's the heart of gratefulness that we should have, that God's greatness and our praise that we have for him moves us to do ridiculous things for him. And it does. All of us, every single one of us in this room has a story of something that God has done for us. Every single one of us in this room has some way that God has moved towards us and blessed us, and often that's through other people. I'm going to embarrass Courtney really quick here. <laughs> I still remember very vividly my very first day when I ever came to BC, and we were still in the Y, so I remember walking into that Y um, lounge area there, and, and I had just come from a church um, from four years in college, which had no Christian community at all. I went to that church for four years, and nobody ever knew my name, and nobody ever asked. And when I left, nobody missed me. How could they? They didn't know me. Right? So I came to this church, and within seconds, I'm walking in. I'm this small, scared college student who knows that I need to go to church, but doesn't really want to because I've been burned at this last one. And Courtney walks right up to me and, and sees me, and she probably sees all of that, introduces herself by name, asks my name. And doesn't just do that and walks away, but has a full conversation with me. And at the end of that conversation, when church was starting and we were all walking in uh, to the gym, I thought, if there are more people like this in this church, then it's going to be a good place to be. And the good news is that there is. There are. Right? You all know the people in this room. You all have done things for each other. You have all blessed each other in so many ways. I could have stood up here this whole time and just told you stories of the way the people in this church have blessed me. Everyone has those stories. So don't keep them to yourselves. Share them with the people around you. Share them with the unbelievers around you. Share them with each other. Use them to encourage each other 
And when you have that encouragement and when you've shared that out, praise God for the goodness that he does. Not just for us or in us, but through the people around us as well. Let the world know that God is good, his promises are true, and that he loves us. Let's read those last three verses. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. God, thank you for the good gifts that you give us. God, thank you that you give us those good gifts, even though we are so small and wretched and don't deserve them at all. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the goodness that you give to us and and the kindness with which you treat us. God, as we go out today and as we go out through the week, I pray that you would remind us and and touch our hearts and move our hearts to praise towards you and, and that that praise towards you turns into love for other people. That as we go out, our lives would look different, that we would be a changed people, that people would say, what is going on with them? Because if we have your love and if we are using it to praise you, then we're not going to look like everyone else. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your love.